the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, when three moons are in the sky like a big pizza pie and the United Nations wants you to die, that's Terra Nova. Plasma wins and Fantastic Story wins, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of a two-part roundtable featuring ten writers from the great new themed anthology, Terra Nova. This is a collection of stories all set in author Tom Crapman's Carrera universe. These are prequel stories to Crapman's Carrera novels, and they are really varied, interesting, and provocative and moving, some of them. All of them have something great about them. We talk with Tom Crapman, Vivian Raper, Casey Ezell, Mike Massa, Robert E. Hampson, Mona Lisa Foster, Jason Watson, Chris L. Smith, and Lawrence Raley, all about their excellent contributions to the book, and Tom Crapman comments on the overall genesis and structure behind it. It's a fascinating discussion with some really top-notch folks, so stay tuned for that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The August E-Arcs are here. Now an E-Arc is the sound a pirate up in the crow's nest makes when he is electrocuted by too big a dose of St. Elmo's fire. It also describes the flaming path he takes as he falls from the mast and strikes the gunwale and flips into the sea with a sizzle. No, 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 that's not what an EARC is. An EARC is actually an electronic advanced reading copy. This is an advanced copy of a book, much like the old galleys that uh, used to get sent out to reviewers and still get sent out to reviewers, although we call them ARCs now. Um, but we always thought that it would be a good idea if we could just make these available to readers who want an advanced peek at a, their favorite author or favorite series' new book, and so we put them on sale at the Bain.com website. Copy edited, but not quite proofread entirely yet by us or the author, and so you might find a few interesting anomalies in there. Bain August arcs include Council of Fire by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, Haley's Comet, 1759, The Comet Veers and Strikes the Earth with Nature-Altering Force. The new world splits from the old. In this changed new world, it is the dawn of real magic and very real monsters. Now a young English prince must wield his newfound powers to unify the continent, or the new world may well slip into oblivion. Also out in New York in August is The Cunning Man by D.J. Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie. It's the depths of the Depression, and a mining town in Utah is shut down. Something has awakened underground, and now a monster roams the tunnels. Along comes Hiram Woolley, a man with mystical abilities derived from the common-sense application of, of Scot-Irish folk wisdom and German Brocker magic. Hiram must confront the monster below, as well as the family of mine owners who would rather watch children starve than compromise with each other. The job will take a man of wisdom, a man of magic, a cunning man. And here's something cool. The best of Jerry Pornell Eark is now available, edited by John F. Carr. This is a huge portion of Jerry Pornell's stories. For half a century, Jerry Pornell's name has been synonymous with hard-hitting, idea-driven, wonder-inducing science fiction. Now for the first time, Pornell's best short work, oh, it also includes a bunch of essays as well, is collected together in a single volume. Here are over a dozen short stories, each with a new introduction by editor and longtime Pornell assistant John F. Carr. Finally, out now in EARC is 1636, The Flight of the Nightingale by David Carrico. Two novels set in Eric Flint's best-selling Ring of Fire series shine a light on the overlooked corners of the Ring of Fire universe where small actions have life-altering consequences because this is time travel. A West Virginia town has gone back into the 1630s Germany by accident and has to live there. That's what the series is about. And David Carrico usually has a nice musical take on his uh, Ring of Fire stories. This one includes two complete novels, The Flight of the Nightingale and Bach to the Future. 1636, The Flight of the Nightingale, 
by David Carrico, The Best of Jerry Pornell, edited by John F. Carr, The Cunning Man, by D.J. Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie, and Council of Fire, by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, are all available in e-arc form at Bain.com and only at Bain.com. Go get them now. This is part two of a two-part interview with the authors and editor of Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation. Part one is available last time on the podcast. want to welcome Tom Crapman, Chris Smith, Justin Watson, Casey Ezell, Lawrence Raley, Mike Matta, Mona Lisa Foster, Rob Hampson, uh, and Vivian, Vivian Raper to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi, Hello. We have quite a, quite a, quite a group here. Um, what we're talking about is uh, out now at booksellers everywhere is, um, Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation, which is edited by Tom Crapman. Um, I want to give Tom's uh, bio a little bit because the, the point of the book is that it is based and set in Tom's Carrera universe. Um, Tom Crapman is a defector from the People's Republic of Massachusetts. He enlisted the Army in 1974 uh, when he was very young, uh, served tours and has enlisted um, in Panama, and then he got a scholarship, went to Boston College, got a degree, a commission. He went back to Panama um, with the 24th Infantry Division and with Recruiting Command. Uh, got out, I think you became a lawyer at that time in like 92, you went to law school. Uh, right. Went back in the Army after 9-11, um, and uh, I guess, were you reserved, Tom? I don't know. Um yeah, well, I was a regular commission until I punched out to go to law school when I changed it over to reserve. I see. Uh, took part in Iraq um, as a, and then uh, did a lot of other things. We could go through them. Uh, you, you worked at the U.N., I believe, the rule of... Um, now, that was... Uh, director of rule of law for the U.S. Army Peacekeeping yeah, the, Stability <laughs> Operation Institute. Um, right. I worked with the never <laughs> damn UN, but I was never with. I knew people there. There we had a, a an O six there, a colonel, who was actually had been assigned to the UN for a while, and his pay had still not recovered from that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I see. It's, it's not really no one's fault. It's just a weirdness to the UN. Tom's the author of the um, the Carrera books, among others, um, and the Countdown series, and some books with John Ringo, um, a bunch of books. The Desert Call Peace series, we might call them, um, beginning with, um, well, we have Caliphate, uh, I call them the Carrera series when I'm thinking about them. Um, and the latest one is The Pillar of Fire by Night, which was out last November. And now we have out at Booksellers Everywhere this um, wonderful collection of stories by people writing in that universe called Terra Nova. So, well, let's talk about The Panther Man by Justin Watson. Um, this is um, the tale of a good soldier who's in a who's placed in a tell us a little bit about this um tell us about arcand and tell us about alexander just yeah so uh, started off with a pretty good description is a good soldier really two good soldiers in uh an impossible situation um i've known tom for quite a while now so when he invited me to participate in his anthology I mean, the first things you think of when you think of Colonel Crapman are sensitivity and wokeness. So naturally, I gravitate towards the story of a, uh, a young African man and a young Asian woman resisting white imperialism. So, you know, that, that's really what the story is at its heart. Um, all your uh-huh. aside, uh, the, the, I agree with Casey's comment earlier that Crapman, uh, Tom's books really revolve around people in agonizing, impossible situations and um, I happened to be researching at that point for something else, uh, both Vietnam and South Africa concurrently. So when he approached me with this, uh, Zulu culture, Vietnamese culture, the French army, these things were all at the top of my head. And the three characters, my Arkand and Alexander, were kind of born of that. And General Arkand is this UN general who is nonetheless 
that rare creature in a, a corrupt uh, bureaucratic military, a very good officer uh, serving a very bad cause. Alexander is uh, actually a hereditary prince of the Zulu in a northern Aruhu who is um, has the intelligence, the integrity to the command he has, but he really is too young for it. Um, he's had a very heavy burden thrust onto him at a very young age. And then Mai is uh, basically the, uh, the hostage, uh, one of Arkan's hostages of a local notable. And uh, the relationship between the three uh, and the various forms that takes and the, the ties that bind them across their, their nationalities and the, the conflicts between them is, is really the crux of the story. Uh, in the interim, it gave me a chance to do some uh, really cool set piece stuff, too. I'm, I'm an artilleryman by trade, so uh, I like the boom, you know, so I, I managed to put a little bit of that in my story. Um, but, yeah, so that, that's, that's how I would summarize it is it's uh, two good soldiers and a very brave young lady uh, in a, a, a really tough situation, all of them trying to do the right thing from three different loyalties. The, the, the priest, my favorite character in there is none of the main characters. It's the priest. Yeah, Father Duke. Yeah, the, um, yeah he's one of my favorites, too. <laughs> you have uh, two sort of fighting priests in the book that are both really uh, in, in Peter Grant's story as well. That um, Right. That, the, that both are, are, are good priests, but fight when they have to. I'm sorry. So Father Duke uh, really follows the tradition of the uh, the pragmatic Catholic priest who's definitely motivated by his conscience, conscience, conscience. Sorry, forgive me. Uh, but is also, you know, willing to do. You know, he's willing. He, what is right is more important to him than feeling good about himself. I think that's another um, pretty classic um, uh, characteristic of a, a, a career reverse character. So yeah, I can see why Father Duke appealed to you, Tom. Um, that's that's what I wanted to say about Father Duke. There's a lot of really great uh, detail. I was trying to say several times. Um, the the uh, just about the fighting and the the various situations. Um, did any of that? Um, I don't know what if you want to say anything about that or not, Jason. Other than uh, uh, but uh, where did it come from? Uh, so so um, a, a couple different places. Like I said, I I, I was in the army for ten years, so. Um, you know, there is a matter of, I feel, both an obligation to showcase it and to try to get it as right as possible when I do write about it. Uh, and also just, um, you know, there was uh, a lot of D&B and foo, uh, very consolidated, because obviously this, this story doesn't have, you know, a short story, even a, a fairly long short story. Thanks, Tom, for giving me the room to write a little bit over. Um, even a fairly long short story doesn't really have the room to encompass something as grand as D&B and Sue, but that's that's a lot of what I was taking uh, inspiration from for these these battles. But um, yeah, that's 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 really what I would like to say about the operational detail. I, I hope uh, it immerses people. I, I I hope I got the just right amount to where if you're reading it, you can enjoy it. Um, if you're someone who knows and you're a professional, it, you know, you, you appreciate the accuracy, but if you're someone who has never served and doesn't really care that much, it doesn't pull you out of the story or bore you. Yeah, I thought it was uh, really well done. Um, so there's a, the other thing that seemed, struck me about the story is that it is it, both characters are doing some really nasty things. Um, they are doing the worst things that soldiers are called upon to do, and um, and Alexander is not he, he's he's dealing with a lot of guilt over um, the fact that he's having to follow orders. Um, this decimating of and the other thing that struck me about it was that this might have been the way to win Vietnam, which is scary. Um, does uh, either well, of those observations uh, ring? Uh, it does. Uh, so. I, obviously, uh, my service in Iraq and Afghanistan filters into this, and there, there are things Alexander does I don't, I wouldn't in my official or private persona uh, um, countenance. That being said, um, there are things he does which would, would unquestionably be effective if you applied them uniformly and intelligently and not as an outburst but as a strategy, which is what Archon is doing. Um, Archon is kind of a monster, but he's not a, 
he's not um, what I'm looking for. He's not wanton. Um, and the things he orders Alexander to do, the things Alexander does, they they are from their perspective necessary. Um, the people Alexander's fighting are awful in their own right. Uh, they're they're the good guys from our perspective because they're the fighting fighting the UN, but they very much commit their own atrocities. Um, which you know, if you study warfare for any length of time, you find that's usually what you when you pick over the anthill and look at any conflict, that's usually what you find. Um, is that if you look at um, the French Indochina War, which is again where a lot of this sprang from, uh, torture, massacre, reprisals against civilians, very common from both sides of that war. Um, not that there weren't cases of mercy and gallantry as well, there definitely were. Um, so that's Alexander for me was really putting someone with a lot of integrity, with a conscience who's fundamentally good in a situation where it's it seems like that is the least bad thing he can do is to uh, commit those very black deeds that nonetheless seem necessary to stop worse and how he deals with it when he starts to realize that perhaps he wasn't justified after all. What is tell us a little bit about his culture because you do bring up the Zulu. Uh, uh, yeah, so the the Zulu culture is is made famous, you know, mostly in the films uh, Zulu and Zulu Dawn uh, in America. Um, I consulted with John Dovey a little bit with Peter Grant, and I read The Washing of the Spears and uh, a bunch of articles. Um, so basically, with Zulu culture, you're looking at the arguably the most effective warrior culture on the African continent. Um, that then, um, from accounts of South African officers I know, retains retains to this day its character uh, in those South African Defense Force units, which are primarily Zulu. Um, you have, uh, in Alexander in particular's case, you have someone who has adopted Christianity but still respects his own culture. So in a way, he is you know bifurcated himself between a Christian concept of morality and you know a hyper-violent, um, very pragmatic view of the world that would be common and from his Zulu ancestors. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how that fed into that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I tried to include uh, some pretty cool detail with the bayonet charges and, and such that uh, evoked that image of uh, of Ketchweo and uh, Shaka Zulu's warriors on a new world. And there's a scene um, where he just... He's just really good at reacting quickly and making sure. I mean, he saves uh, a car during a, uh, a botched uh, assassination attempt, and there's no question, however morally uh, compromised he feels, that when action is called for, he's there, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's uh, you know, as, as obviously I'm not a Zulu warrior, but as someone with a, a Western, uh, specifically Christian conscience who nonetheless kind of enjoyed my experiences in combat. Yeah, that that's definitely a uh, an interesting aspect of his personality for me to explore and something that I I've, I've seen uh in many people who were very genteel, noble, admirable, moral people but were absolutely fierce uh once action started, very eager to fight. And you soften it up a little bit with my um and she is um before been used as a Have as, I? I mean before a... went through hell. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you can call it often, yeah, but there's a love interest of sorts. So mine is um, uh, Jerry Larkand, uh realizing that it is it is easier, however brutal he's willing to be, it is easier to rule if you have the cooperation of local leadership. Um, did a very, you know, being a military historian, he would have studied the Romans and did a very Roman thing and took hostages of the children of local notables, my being one of them. Uh, he is more honorable in his conduct toward Mai uh, than his predecessor, which uh, softens her stance towards him a little in that she hopes he dies quickly um, rather than suffering. Um, but so Mai is in a a very um, uh, Stockholm-prone situation where she has she lives with Arkan as part of his household, not his mistress or anything. Um, she, he is educating her, um, trying to make her into a proper Euro-style noble to, you know, help him govern this colony, because he's looking at the future. Uh, there's nothing really left for him on Earth as a professional soldier. He's trying to make Cochina his, 
personal fiefdom, really. And he sees Mai and uh, folks like her as his, you know, his mandarins, so to speak, the people who will help him administrate this colony. Um, so she she has seen Arkan up close enough to develop you know, some respect for him, but she wants the UN gone. Um, she has been around Alexander enough to start to fall in love with him, but she desperately wants the UN gone. Um, and she's, that, that's her personal conflict is she's developed affection for two men who represent everything that she is actively trying to resist. She's, it's not a spoiler. It's very early on in the book. She is an intelligence asset for the resistance uh, inside the capital. So that's, that's her personal conflict is her personal loyalty and affection for Arkand and very much for Alexander versus what she knows to be her duty to her country and her family. Yeah, it's a great it's a great little novella with um, and it's a, it's got um, lots of angst and grit and uh, fighting and and conflict and spies. It's it's really good stuff. Thank you, thank you. I actually uh, when I presented the first outline, uh, Tom took a look at it and said, Justin, that's not a short story, that's a trilogy. And I presented the second outline and said, oh, good, that's a novel. Now shorten it some more. And I said, okay, okay, here you go. And he's like, well, that might be a short story. Go ahead and write it, and we'll cut from there. It's really good. Well, let's talk to Chris uh, Smith about Chris L. Smith about Blood, Sweat, and Tears, um, which is a, a shorter tale, and it's about Marco, who is uh, a craftsman. I think that this story is about growing exasperation with that a craftsman feels when somebody keeps wanting what um tell us a little bit about this setup here. there there may be a little bit of that <laughs> um well uh you know i was trying to think about how to frame my answer and casey it really helped out when she when she gave hers is that she she and i are our writing partners were also very good friends and we were discussing um the terra nova anthology on the way back, I believe, from RavenCon a few years ago. She's like, I really want you to join this, I, you know, this anthology, and here's here's what I have, and she kind of gave me the story of, of her her Hilo pirate, and I was like, God, Jesse, I don't know what I'm going to do. She says, well, what do you know? And she's like, you know what I know. <laughs> you know, I don't know the military. And so I, after over the drive, we kind of kicked this idea around and came up that, well, why not do something based on um, what I do almost every day, which is uh, you know, I generally work in um, construction, doing either new construction or remodels, but we specifically the beer systems, um, the keg the beer systems. And every little frustration that comes through on the page, I had to delete several because it was getting a little too involved and too detailed. But uh, all of all of Marco's exasperating moments have happened at one point or another where you're trying, for example, trying to get an engineer to understand the artist and the artist to understand what the engineer is saying, that, no, it can't look like that because it won't work otherwise, and it's more important that it works than it looks like exactly how you want it. Um, so, yeah, kicking this whole thing around, and it was like, okay, well, how do I put any kind of conflict in it? And when she said, you know, you put your hero in, in, in a position where it's bad or worse, and it just kind of gave me the idea. Um, you know, what about this this blue-collar guy who is put into this situation not by any choosing of his own, but because he doesn't have a choice at all. Um, he's the one of the most skilled uh not necessarily a craftsman himself, but a general contractor, the guy that gets everybody together to do it and do it well and do it on time and under budget. And he's called up by the shop who wants to put on this really impressive display and he wants to remodel his ballroom and he wants to have this fountain that, you know, this, this magic fountain that pours juice and wine and beer and it all has to be chilled and it has to, you know, look good and, and it's to impress these off-planet um, dignitaries that are coming in who aren't Muslim and can drink and after a very long space, space trip with no alcohol, uh, they, would, they would probably like one. And so the Shah wants to be the good host and also score some major points and so he calls upon the guy that can get this thing done so he hears. Well, the the problem is that if Marco fails, there's a thinly veiled threat that he will never work in this town again. Um, so that's how we kind of kick this whole thing off. Uh, Marco is a family man. He loves his wife. He loves his children. He adores his daughters. 
and has one about to go to college. Again, also pulling from my life at the time, um, the threat of, of tuition <laughs> and, and, and keeping those, those checks coming. Um, and then he is approached by a group of people who do not want the Shah to pull this off. So he's now put in the position of failing on purpose over the, again, not so thinly veiled threat against his family being used as leverage on both sides, uh, one a little bit more in, intimidating and, and ominous than the other, um, failing on purpose and, and losing his reputation, uh, his family's future, or succeeding and unfortunately having to go through with you know this, this ominous whatever these people have planned, uh, he doesn't know. And it just kind of that's that's kind of the conflict that that I set up with this whole thing. But I really wanted it from a person's point of view that isn't a soldier. Um, he doesn't have any particular combat skills or, or you know heroic bravery of anything more than just a guy trying to get through his day to day in the middle of, of events that he doesn't. He, he's not picking a side. He's just trying to continue on with his life in the best way possible and provide for his family. And I think it gave me. Uh, at the end of the day, I really like the story um, because it does kind of touch on those those things you feel as uh, as a father, uh, as a businessman, as someone who is trying to provide for his family and also provide keep his reputation and do you know the best job that he can. Yeah, he's trying to. Um, he's, he's sort of the way that he deals with getting uh, so the the insurgents or somebody uh, that doesn't doesn't want this thing the Shah is attempting to come off, show up and, and tell him that, you know, that, that they're going to in, in, uh, plant a guy and, and something might happen. Uh, the way that he deals with it is the way that it, it's another, like, parameter of the deal that he has to, and he tries to incorporate it into his work method, right? That's what's kind of cool about yeah. the story is that He's trying in every way to just stay a professional and do his job, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's his driving focus, and you know, he's he never really has a how do I get myself out of this moment? He almost resigns himself to the fact that he's going to have to help these people, even though he doesn't know what it is. He knows it's not going to be anything good. He just doesn't know what it is exactly. And when he finds out, it's you know, not trying not to give anything away. When he does find out exactly what, what what's going on, it's "Quote unquote," too late. Um, so then Marco is put in the position where he does have to pick a side. Um, and yeah. he, I, I, I hope but this goes through as, as how he resolves the situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he does make a. He doesn't break character, and yet he acts heroically. But the uh, the Shaw is not, you know, all that good of a guy. He's, he's threatened like. You'll never work in this town again if you mess this up, right? So it's not uh, – he's got two sides that are both threatening his I – mean, threatening him yeah. and not just, uh, you know, it's it's real threats. Yeah, it is. Um, the Shah's is, is more, um, you know, reputation and monetarily, but, it, you know, he's – it, one of the other challenges, too, was not to make the, the Shah this mustache-twirling villain. Um you know he's he's cheerful. He's he's kind of hey my friend my friend. You know uh, he, he offers him refreshments and, and treats him to some more or less luxuries at this time and place and, and writes him a large check. Basically says money is no object. Whatever you're going to charge, charge me and I'll pay it. But <laughs> make sure that you get this done. And if you don't, you know huge rewards, huge risks. And uh, as as a business person myself you're put in this situation more often than you'd like to be. You know, it's, okay, well, here's 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 the project. Here's how much it's going to pay. Here's when we need it, and it's usually two weeks less than you, than you really need. <laughs> and a lot of times it involves, you know, all right, the deadline is you have to be done by 12 o'clock tomorrow morning or 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, and we have to be able to uh, to open the doors. Are you going to accept? Do you accept this mission? You know, like, yeah. And so far, so good. We've been able to hit deadlines, but my partner and I both have looked at each other 
at the end of just hellish nights, uh, you know, two, three nights in a row doing, doing remodels and just said, God, we can, we can hit a deadline, but it's starting to hurt more these days. So, so but yeah, so the Shah is, uh, he's not necessarily a sympathetic character, but we don't get to see him a whole lot, um, throughout the course of the story. He's just kind of a, a, a looming threat in the background. Meanwhile, um, Ivy, the, uh, uh, the plant, I guess, the infiltrator's plant, is more of a he's more of a mysterious threat, but he's definitely a threat. Um, he is in, in no way, shape, or form a nice guy, and he never comes across as a nice guy. So he's my... Uh, uh, I was trying to think of who I was thinking of when I was doing that. Kind of... Um, he's kind of a Grand Moff Tarkin type, you know, where he's, he's just... He's, he's very scary without looking really scary but you know this guy can do something yeah well they have the the conversations they have are very are very dry and sort of funny even um in they're full of threats from him but at the same time they're they're these veiled threats that are almost humorous it's kind of a it's kind of a bit of a witty story <laughs> while our our hero oh, is being threatened with his life yeah, and you know he's he's kind of a guy that's at the end of his rope at this point, and he's he's not taking well the threats, but unfortunately he also knows when he's outmatched by the other guy, uh, just in, you know by the way he carries himself. Um, I, I do I do like to interject some humor into the stories when I can. Uh, this isn't the darkest story I've written. It's one of the the three darker stories that I've written. But even then, you know there was some the the, the scene with the artist and the engineer was probably my favorite, just because it was. It was so over the top and, and kind of flamboyant, uh, you know, almost slapstick in the way that I, I was able to deal with it. But then later on, you know, there was a there's a scene towards the end that it just kind of really, I don't know, it, for for me at least, it it felt very emotionally uh, satisfying. I guess is the best word I can come up with that. How I think it was mainly because of the writing process, because I was stuck. I didn't know how I was going to do wrap this whole thing up, and it kind of came to me, and I was able to tie back into something that happened earlier in the, in the story, and it was just uh, very emotionally satisfying as a writer to do that. I hope it comes through, and I hope it's as, as emotionally powerful as I felt it was at the time. Um, but yeah, it was it was a uh, it was a really interesting story to write, and I really did like it at the end of the day. I was afraid I wasn't going to because I. Well, not 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 because Tom Crapman was glaring at me at LibertyCon a few times, yelling, "Smith, you owe me a story," and scaring the living daylight out of me. But um, <laughs> I was worried that I was going to kind of rush this thing. But uh, no, at the end of the day, the uh, the the veil threat of, of Mr. Crapman, Tom Crapman standing outside my window glaring at me, really helped. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, as, as kind of an aside, like a... I'm coming back. The, uh, the the other part of that is so uh, that particular Liberty Con it wasn't this this past one uh, it was 2018 as as I'm coming back to San Antonio I get off the plane and I'm walking through the airport with my daughter and I swear to God I see Colonel Crapman in front of me and it just did a quick double take and my heart started racing it's like oh my God he followed me home and then the gentleman turned around and it wasn't but there's a very striking resemblance to the back of the Colonel's head. Yikes. Yeah. I kind of, uh, I, I thought Mr. Ivy had some crapman. I mean, because Tom could come across as kind of scary and uh, urbane at the same time. There was I think probably just a little bit of Colonel K in there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, you got I'm that nice particular person. fountain there sometimes. Yes, yes, sure. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, it's a really great little story, and it's funny and moving at the same time. So you you did pull it off uh, very well, and, and well, it shoots out beer and wine <laughs> and chill juice. But it, that is actually something that we can do. Um, that was part of it. Was also trying to dumb down the technology a little bit because uh, of of the location. I didn't know what they would have in terms of technology, and it's, it's kind of a, a vague time frame for the whole thing. I was. I was counting on the colonel to, to correct me if I if I put something in that couldn't happen, but um, that is 
that is something that we could do almost, like I said, almost on a daily basis. So it was really pulling from my daily experience and, and just trying to turn it into a background without putting too much technical stuff in there. I didn't want to bore everybody. <laughs> well, it's a cool story. Well, let's talk about uh, Thank you. Wanuko um, by Lawrence Rayleigh. Um, this is uh, this is the story of nerds making good. Um, we've got tell us a little bit about Tom and David and and how they end up on uh, Terra Nova. All right. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Tom and David, uh, um, that that whole situation kind of started from a conversation um, Tom Crapman and I had, um, kind of a, a, a almost a political joke in a way. Like, what if things got so bad that that Americans started illegally immigrating to Mexico? Um, how would the Mexicans take it? Well, um, in the story, uh, Thomas and David get deported to an entirely different planet. Um, so obviously not the best result for them. Um, talk about your bad luck. Yeah. I kind of, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and they do it of course, uh, right after a night of hard drinking, because that's why they're in Mexico to begin with. They can, you know, have a, have a good time on, on, you know, a cheap salary and drink and party and act irresponsible. And so not only are they uh, deported from the, the planet, but they get deported with a hangover, which, you know. Stepping onto a rocket ship with a hangover is probably not the the best experience. Um, in writing this, I was I was kind of reminded of something a friend of mine said, where if you if you like your characters a lot, you have to uh, you have to beat them up a little bit. And I, I feel like Tom and David get beat up a little bit in the in the story. Um, but it, yeah, it kind of turned out to be something of, of a question: What would happen? So this this planet's getting settled, and and you know, presumably, since, you know, as, as the main character says a couple of times, um, it's kind of the UN's people landfill in space, um, you know, where they dump everybody they don't want. So they're, they're not necessarily giving everybody the lap of luxury when they settle this planet. So you've got a mixture of, of high tech and low tech all going on at the same time. Um, you have a, a kind of like almost late Iron Age, but you have technologies, you know, all over the place, uh, that you can pilfer from the UN or sneak in in your baggage or whatever the case may be. And so how does, how does somebody survive on that if they are not one of, if they are not of, of the heroic type, if they are not military men or guerrilla fighters, how do you, you know, what happens to a pair of geeks who get thrown on this planet? How do they survive? And so that's kind of the, the genesis of the story. Um, and they get kind of dropped into this, this whole environment they don't understand. They don't even speak the language uh, because they were, you know, in uh, in Mexico. They didn't get deported to the American sector, the, the Colombian sector. Um, they get deported to to the Spanish sector. So um, they can't even speak the language. Um, they're basically geeks. What's you know what's going to happen to them? Um, so yeah, they they manage to survive in their own way, but. Uh, in the in the course of the story, they they run into the the other character, which I think is actually my personal favorite character of the story, which is uh, Carlos. And Carlos is kind of a, an unwilling drug lord, if you will, uh, who's uh, supplying uh, smugglers who uh, with the Juanico, which is uh, um, kind of like a cocaine-like substance. And so the geeks wind up working for them. And kind of have to figure out how to survive. Uh, and it's kind of a running joke, which which Tom Crapman and I discussed a few times. Uh, the poor geeks are sitting there trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to keep their benefactor satisfied with with their skills. The, you know, Carlos wants them to make trouble for the UN, who he has a personal vendetta against. And in the meantime, they're you know, th nobody nobody understands technology around them hardly, at least not at their level. And it's you know, it's not exactly an easy thing. It's not like on TV where somebody just you know types in a few things on the keyboard and boom, they hack into everything. Uh, so they have to cause mischief in whatever way they can and whatever is available to them. And they have to do it in the middle of a tight you know timeline with all of Carlos's men around them joking about how they're going to slit their throats in their sleep 
or throw them to the megs as bait or just otherwise make things very unpleasant for them. So in a way, it's kind of these two dorky individuals who, were, who had kind of an irresponsible life um, up until now, just party and, and had no direction and nothing to just kind of drifted through life, are now kind of forced to step up, are put in situations they've, they've never experienced before and have to kind of grow up and take control of their lives um, in the middle of what basically amounts to a guerrilla war. So, yeah, they get kind of abused. Yeah. Well, they, they do, yeah, and, but they do have skills. Um, they are coders. I mean, and they're, they're not bad at it, right? They're, they're pretty good at it. Exactly. Exactly. And so they're, they're able to cause a lot of mischief here and there um, because uh, uh, they're able to get into cameras. They're able to repair drones. Um, they're able to hack into various uh, social media networks. So basically like the equivalent of, of Facebook for, you know, the occupation force because they bring their technology with them. So they have their, their kind of entertainment. Um, and and so they're able to kind of do a lot with that uh, in terms of demoralization, in terms of getting information to Carlos, who then passes it on to his people, and that causes uh, all kinds of mischief for the UN. But uh, the other thing is kind of uh, um, <laughs> what happens with uh, some of the videos that they get. So I wanted kind of a villain who was a little bit sympathetic in her own way, somebody who, you know, wasn't just cookie cutter, cardboard cutout. I, I think someone else said they're like a, you know, twirly mustache kind of, kind of person. Somebody who had a reason for being the villain and she's trying to do all of this, you know, drug smuggling and stuff to get out from under the high admiral who is basically, you know, using her as a, something of a personal sex toy. Um, and she sees that, you know, this, the money and the, the power that she can get from doing this will get her out from under that. And so she's pretty sympathetic the whole time. But unfortunately, our, our, for her, our two geeks do uh, get into her bedroom camera, and uh, uh, all sorts of uh, ramifications come from that. It's kind of fun in games, and they're kind of having fun with, you know, a little bit of memes and some, you know, some funny posts and, hack, you know, little casual stuff, little small stuff, but eventually, yeah, it gets a lot more serious for them, and they have to start realizing that that it's not just fun and games, that they are, they're messing with an armed force that is going to want to kill them for what they're doing. And so that's, that's kind of a realization that dawns on them gradually through the story. And, you know, they're eventually put into a position where they have to do some fairly ugly things. Tell us, uh, my favorite character in the story is that is that meaty uh, bodyguard dude, um, the the lackey to Carlos, who uh, who really he starts to develop. We think he's just a, a spear uh, carrier um, at first, but he really develops quite a character. Um, I can't think of his name. Enrique, yeah. So on, on, Enrique is yeah. kind of a exactly kind of a. He started out as as like you said, kind of the the spear carrier and kind of a, you know, generic flunky. But as I realized, I'm like, they're not going to deal with Carlos all the time. They're going to deal with somebody else. Carlos is a busy man. He's got a lot of things going on. I mean, he's trying to grow tobacco. He's trying to run a drug operation. He's trying to not die. There's all sorts of stuff going on there. So they needed, we needed somebody else to kind of interact with. And where Carlos is a very highly educated man and speaks English fluently and, and all that, Enrique really isn't. He's... He's kind of more of a direct personality. Uh, his English is broken, but he's kind of like uh, the endearing thug, so to speak. So he's the one that's kind of joking a lot of the time, like, "Oh, you know, maybe we'll just slit your throat when you, you know, when you're sleeping or something like that." Or, "Eh, Carlos will tire of him and have him killed in two weeks." Um, but at the whole time, you're kind of getting a sense for he actually kind of likes the geeks. And, you know, he, he kind of sees himself as their, their protector. But it's, 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 you know, a little bit subtle. We don't, you know, I don't want to beat the reader over the head with it, but it's, it's kind of funny. And like uh, when he's joking about the uh, Archaeopteryx that gets uh, kind of cut up by uh, some drone rotors, and he's like, yeah, it tastes like pollo. 
This is uh, interesting too, in that the uh, the rebels stopped have stopped using cell phone technology and and really any electronics, and they're they're doing like carrier uh, archaeopteryxes. Yeah, so they're they're basically at this point they've had enough experiences with you know the UN tracking you know electronics and and radio signals and computers and stuff like that that, that they pretty much become paranoid about it, you know, kind of rightly so in a way, and don't use any of it. And so it's very low tech, like they use a, an Archaeopteryx to, you know, capture a drone. Uh, and they, they don't use any form of radio communication for a long time, at least until the geeks are able to kind of secure a way for them to not be tracked and to be listened into. So they're, they're very paranoid about what's going on. They don't have a lot of technology, and they're afraid to use a lot of the technology they do have because, you know, the U.N. can track it and come after them. So Tom and David are, are key to kind of opening that channel for them and, you know, allowing them to communicate again without having to use runners and birds and, you know, other kind of primitive means. And so the, the interesting thing is that even though there's, there's a little bit of action in the story, I don't think you could have a story in this universe that didn't have somebody getting shot or somebody dying or heaps of bodies somewhere. Um, a lot of it is is outside the view of both Tom and David. They're they're kind of in their nerd nest um, at Carlos's manor, trying to direct all this other stuff. And so we hear of a lot of what's going on around them. But but even then, uh, Tom and David are kind of like, well, you know, I I I don't really want to hear about you know all of these people dying and and all of this stuff that we're actually doing. They're they're kind of trying to to distance themselves from it throughout most of the story, at least until they have to come face to face with it. Yeah, yeah, and that's—I mean—that is the story of their of, of what's going on with them. Because then by the end of the thing, Thomas really become a man um, from a boy-like, uh, goofy character that he started out as. Exactly. It's 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 very much a journey, and and he constantly reflects early in the story that. That you know, I don't feel like my life is my own. I feel like I'm just a passenger. Um, he's really not. It's it's his his own kind of lack of direction and irresponsibility that kind of gets him into some of these situations. But over time, he he finally finds a purpose and uh, you know something, some kind of direction in his life, and kind of takes control of things. And for that part, uh, David, who you know I, I describe as as you know a, a little bit of a portly fellow who you know is totally shy and doesn't know what he's doing by the end of the story. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. He is very much not, um, not a fat guy who, who, who can't get anybody interested in him. So he kind of grows up too. And so the story is kind of very much about them growing up. And at the same time, the villain that I was speaking of, she kind of grows up in her own way, albeit perhaps a little late uh, for her career, but you kind of see at the end where, where she kind of realizes that, you know, she, she had been doing things all wrong uh, as well. And so it's, it's very much a coming-of-age story for both of them and kind of a realization, you know, on the part of, of the villain that, you know, maybe all this stuff I was doing, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a fun tale. It's, it starts out um, it, a bit of uh, – and it, it, like a lot like Chris's, um, it, it starts out, somewhat humorous and then gets uh gets serious toward the end and it's really it turns out really good um tom uh have we covered everybody that we have on the on the line and uh would you like to I, I so. I, you you have a you here. Yeah. go ahead i think we did um tell us about the well, I mean, if you could sum up a bit, you have a final story in here called The Redeemer, which is about, which is after all of this stuff has happened, uh, the new UN Inspector General shows up to clean up this mess. Um, what? Uh, yeah, I call what do you think General, about? I call him an Inspector General, but that's just you know uh, linguistic sleight of hand. He's sent there with the title, but in fact, he's there to be a commander. And, and what that story is really about is, is something that is just a phenomenon of war that people don't really understand generally, which is that nothing fails like success, and that you know everything you do will 
that works will create a reaction. And he's the UN's, re he, he's actually a real person, but I won't tell you who he is. People who know him will know him. Um, but uh, he is the UN's reaction to what's going on in Terra Nova. He's a ruthless bastard, uh, pretty good soldier, um, not somebody I would necessarily trust in most respects. Uh, and he goes there intending to clean up the corruption and clean up the mess that his predecessors have, have left for him. And he does that in a really heavy-handed, brutal fashion. But, you know, that can work. Um, and uh, most of the, the action is limited. Um, most of the, what you think of as action takes place in, um, in Wellington, which is also where Alex's story, Alex isn't here tonight, but where his story is set, and uh, it's mostly about hello, dog. It's mostly about teaching the wogs a sharp Sorry lesson about, that. <laughs> uh, about who is actually in charge, uh, which he proceeds to do. Uh, he, like I say, he's not a nice guy. He's not sympathetic, but he is exactly what you get if you're facing some people in an insurgency who in, who are determined not to lose. And that's probably all I want to say about that yeah. story. Oh, except that it does tie. I actually had to wait on writing. Don't be crazy. I had to wait on writing the story to get the very last story in and and essentially done because um, the, the new IG, the new commander, really, uh, goes through every one of the other stories with a snap judgment on what, the prob what problem they present to us. Uh, I think that's a pretty good way to lead also into um, a second volume, assuming that we do that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, and it it's a neat way to reflect back on uh, on, on the cool stories that we've just read as well, um, without just saying, "Hey, yeah, we just read a bunch of cool stories." So, what do you think about all these cool stories, Tom? I mean, I'm I'm deeply impressed with this anthology with the with the um, amount of good stuff that came in. Um, they don't always turn out this well, but this one's pretty good. Yeah, well, my first uh, my first observation is advice to anybody else who wants to try to do this: do not do open casting calls. Find the people you want to write and have them write for you. It's it's a lot less painful um, and a lot better. I second that. The second one is. Yeah. Again, I said I second that. What'd you say? No open yeah. call. Uh, the the second thing is, you know, the unified monocultural planet is pretty much a sci-fi trope. Yeah, sure, there are exceptions. Cornell's Falkenberg series has different cultures on one planet because you need that to war. Hey, Great Slammer Slammers does much the same thing, but it's you know still it's pretty normal and routine, almost a given that a planet in sci-fi will have one culture. Right. Uh, I suspect that in most cases, that's because sci-fi really isn't about the future. You know, it's about the here and now, and the planets are largely stand-ins for countries or cities as they exist or have recently existed. But if we ever get out there, and we're fortunate enough, enough not to get squashed like burned by the civilizations already out there, there's going to be one planet first. Yeah, there was a time when whoever discovered that planet probably would have kept it and made a mirror image of themselves. But, you know, that day has passed. Uh, we've kind of, we kind of wrecked it with that whole we came in peace for all mankind rather than this moon is ours. Um, so we'll probably turn over governance to the U.N. or some special agency that answered to the U.N. Um, and if you want to know how the U.N. would fuck that up, and they would fuck that up, this is book three. <laughs> Yeah. Terra Nova itself is um is is a is a strange blend of modern technology, present day technology for us and this third world um sort of quality that the colonists are thrown back into. And it, it creates some very uh riveting situations for people that we also recognize. Um it's just uh it's it's quite a brew you've come up with. Um Pops in, if I could, that the strange brew mix of technology, modern and not modern, was a real challenge for putting together medicine 
for Terra Nova. How's that? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's a regional thing. Some regions are more modern than others. Some are really, you know, if you came from a fairly rich country in on, on Earth and your country cared about your colony, there's a good chance you kept a fair amount of um, technology. Panama, for example, which is where Balboa is settled from, that's almost, it's not quite first world, but it's almost first world. You could go there and accept that they speak Spanish. It wouldn't be terribly strange to you. Oh, and that the women are really good looking, too. That, that, that's not <laughs> unusual. But, uh, but um, other places, like the Philippines, it's, it's a poor country. Vietnam is a poor country. So they're people they're getting rid of. They're just getting them off the books. They don't care if they how well they do or what happens to them. They're just cutting their population to, to cut their domestic expenses and getting rid of troublemakers while they're at it. That's why there Which were a lot of Catholics in my story, too. statistically speaking. Yeah. So yeah. what is what's <laughs> what's next on the drawing board, Tom? Oh, that is such a okay uh, for this. Assuming that it's worth that you know it turns out to be you know uh, popular enough to continue with it, I'm going to drag the same people back. You owe me a story, Smith, um, <laughs> to do volume two. <laughs> and sum uh, sum up for us, if you would, um, your your final impressions on the on the anthology. And okay, my final and personal ones is these guys were a lot of fun to work with, actually. It's not necessarily easy, but they were still a lot of fun to work with. Um, <laughs> it was good to read stories in my universe that I didn't have to write. Uh, I think it holds together pretty well as a sort of a novel composed of chapters, every one of which is written by different people, um, and every one of which features different characters. Uh, and I hope people enjoy it. And that's well, I certainly all. did. Uh, yeah, and and I think uh, and since my job is to be a surrogate for many many readers, I think they will too. Um, the book is Terra Nova: The Wars of Liberation, edited by Tom Kratman. Um, want to thank Tom Kratman. I want to thank Chris Smith, Justin Watson, Casey Zell, Lawrence Rayleigh, Mike Massa, Mona Lisa Foster, um, Robert E. Hampson, and Vivian uh, Raper. And, of course, Tom Kratman, again, uh, for being with us. Uh, thank you all so much for talking about your stories in Terra Nova. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Tony. That was part two of a two-part interview with the authors and editor of Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation. Part one is available last time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 35 it was a strange sensation, being the bait in a trap, terrifying yet exhilarating at the same time. As Rada walked through the busy streets of the capital, she knew she was being watched by inquisitors. 
Radha would not have agreed to this if she'd not had complete faith in Devadas's promise to keep her safe. The large man next to her was supposed to be her slave. His thick arms were loaded with books taken from the library, none of which were special or of any real value, but the men tailing her wouldn't know that. All they would see is that the archivist they'd warned to remain silent was approaching the estate of the presiding judge in broad daylight, without having been summoned, carrying lots of evidence. Devadas had told her that the conspirators would assume the worst, that she was about to present the true report on the castless question, and try to stop her. That had not been very reassuring. It was early morning. The streets were crowded this time of day, as everyone tried to get their business done before the desert became too hot. A network of massive aqueducts divided the capital into six different districts, and Rada was walking toward the richest one, where the estates made her father's house look tiny and poor in comparison. By now, the men following her would know that there was only one possible place she could be going, and they would be prepared to act. Rada paused under the shade of a great stone wall to collect herself. If everything went according to plan, within a few moments, someone would try to murder her. Are you all right, senior archivist? Her slave asked. I'm fine, Karno, she assured the protector. In humble grey robes and a wide straw hat, he was not nearly so intimidating as when they'd first met. He might not have been carrying that ridiculous hammer, but by the way he'd hauled such a heavy stack of books all this way, without ever so much as the slightest sign of exertion, or so much as a bead of sweat on his face, she could only assume he didn't need a hammer to hurt anyone. It's fine. You'll be safe, Connor whispered. Will they really think I'm this stupid, this naive, that I'd thwart them so brazenly? They'll expect no subterfuge from a bookworm, the big man explained patiently. I mean no offense. The library is the noblest calling in the capital. Why would I be offended? Rada looked around the jostling mass of humanity she'd have to pass through, men, women, young and old, of three castes and their slaves. Any of them could be an inquisitor waiting to drive a poisoned blade into her as she passed by. There was no way to recognize them without their masks. There's just so many of them. Only a few will be assassins. That's not helping. Devadas is near. Do you trust him? Kano asked. More than she'd ever trusted any man. She didn't know if that was a side effect of being in love for the first time, or if he really was as capable as she believed him to be. But Devadas had said he'd needed her help, so she'd agreed to be a target. She didn't understand the political nuances of everything that was going on, but the rebellion in the South was causing a lot of trouble. Fragile alliances were being strained, and there was a power struggle going on between the righteous protectors and the insidious inquisitors. Her father had warned her to stay out of it, because no matter who won, the library would still be there. But he didn't know she was sleeping with the Lord Protector, either. I trust him. Rada's mouth was suddenly very dry, and her legs didn't want to work, but she continued into the judge's district anyway. Her nerves were twitching, but she tried not to flinch as the crowd pressed around her. Rada did her best not to show her fear, but she didn't know how the warriors did it, somehow keeping their emotions concealed while threatened. People bumped into her. Normally, everyone avoided colliding with a member of the first caste, but most of these were first caste, functionaries who worked in the various bureaucracies, and she was nothing special here. A woman was coming right at her. Rada almost shrieked when she saw the woman had a mask, but then she realized it was only a veil over her face in the Zaga style. Before she could brush against Rada's arm, Carno bumped into the woman with his stack of books and knocked her aside. Watch it, oaf! Apologies, Carno said as he bowed his head submissively. You should have your slave whipped for his clumsiness! The woman spat as she continued on her way. I will! Bad slave! Rada exclaimed. Carno was right next to her as they walked.
He seemed perfectly calm, but his eyes were darting back and forth as he absorbed every detail of the people around them. They were surrounded by bodies so close that Rada could smell their perfume or what they'd eaten for breakfast. Then she realized that Karna wasn't just looking side to side, but upwards as well, checking the windows and rooftops. There were flags, colorful banners, and curtains rustling in the breeze. The lower rooftops were shielded from view by lattice walls woven with vines. An assassin could be hiding behind any of those things. She'd not even thought about being shot with a poisoned dart. The assassins in the adventure books she'd read always used blow guns with poisoned darts. The buildings were three and four stories tall here. That was a lot of windows. It was still a mile to the judge's estate, but she was so nervous she didn't think she'd make it that far. Another minute of walking and being brushed up against by several strangers, and Rada was sick to her stomach, flushed and sweating. Luckily, she didn't have to go very far before they struck. In fact, she'd have been dead twice before she'd even realized she was under attack if it hadn't been for Karno. Suddenly he dropped all but one of the books. Rada turned to see what was the matter, but the big man reached out, lightning quick, and shoved the book right in front of her face. Thunk. At first she'd thought the blur had been a flying bug. But then she saw the fletching and realized an arrow had been stuck deep into Urag's compilation of trade regulations. An instant later, Karno had turned away to intercept a plain-looking worker. It wasn't until Karno had grabbed onto him that Rada realized the worker was holding a knife in his hand, hidden low at his side. It was hard to tell what happened because it was all so fast, but Karno twisted the worker's arm in a direction never intended by nature. The man snarled, struggled, then cried out in pain as Karno levered him around and snapped the bones of his arm. Karno took the worker's knife away and stabbed him in the stomach so hard that it lifted the worker from his feet. Karno twisted and the man screamed. A blob of blood fell and burst on the stone. Droplets hit Rada's shoes. Shocked, she looked up to see that several warriors were pushing through the crowd straight toward her. The violence had all happened so fast that it made no sense that their swords were already drawn. Get down, Karno told Rada, as he lifted the impaled man to shoulder height, then threw him at the warriors. The impact swept people from their feet, and from their shocked and indignant reactions, most of them weren't assassins. But the warriors kept on coming. As Rada ducked behind a noodle cart, Karno spread his arms and calmly waited for the warriors to approach. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a pack of golden retrievers equipped with AI pattern recognition so that now they can actually retrieve real gold instead of that iron pyrite stuff. Plus, thanks, praise, and plaudits to Tom Kratman, Vivian Raper, Casey Ezell, Mike Massa, Robert E. Hampson, Mona Lisa Foster, Jason Watson, Chris L. Smith, and Lawrence Raley, excellent editor and contributors to Terra Nova. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>